Okay, yes, some opening remarks before uh, diving into my, my talk. So I want to welcome you all to this conference on behalf of Phoenix Seminary. In my, hum- in my humble opinion, this conference is very important and unique. The topic is the Bible, but this will not be a normal Bible conference. Most Bible conferences, at least the ones I've attended, treat the topics of inspiration, inerrancy, and authority. And believe me when I say those conferences and topics are really important. In fact, all of the speakers participating in this conference today hold to these truths without reservation. But this conference focuses on different issues. Namely, what is the Bible? And how does the Bible come down to us. Daniel Wallace, among other Christian scholars, has noticed that many Christian young people waver in their faith and commitment to the Lord when they are confronted with the idea that the Bible has a textual history and there are errors in the manuscripts. In other words, one of the main questions of our day is not, is the Bible true? Rather, many more appear to be asking, do we even have the Bible in the first place? Additionally, these same thoughtful Christians are oftentimes unsettled when they learn that Roman Catholics and the Eastern Orthodox have more books in their Bibles than Protestants do. Therefore, among other questions, this conference seeks to answer this basic question. Can we trust that the text we have in our hands is authentic? The quick answer to that question is yes. Today's conference, I hope, will provide pieces that will help each of you put together the longer answer for the sake of the church. Okay, and with that, let's dive in to this, this the ancient lot temple library text, preservation, and canonicity. In historical context, we think the Bible is preserved well. How do we account for this? Well, first of all, we have what is known as the Masoretic Text. This is the Hebrew text that uh, really all we had before 1947. Scholars considered the text of the Old Testament to be largely uniform, that is, there were relatively few variants in the manuscripts from book to book. The text was known primarily through the medieval Hebrew manuscripts, often referred to collectively as the Masoretic Text, with the Codex Leningrad as its chief example. This text traditions hundreds of manuscripts had very few variants or differences among themselves, giving the firm impression that the text had been copied very conservatively, So we can see, these are some of our earliest manuscripts here uh, uh, of the Masoretic text. Uh, Some of the, well, all of these are between the 3rd and 7th centuries uh, A.D. We've also got a list, if this works, here it is, of uh, some of the more important Hebrew manuscripts before 1100. The Leningrad that I just mentioned and the Aleppo Codex here will uh, contain most all of the Old Testament. We will uh, be referring to those as we uh, go through. There was another form of evidence. Oh, one second. Sorry. 
so we've got the, a picture of the Leningrad here as well, and we've also got a picture of the Aleppo uh, here. But another form of evidence for the text was what was called the Septuagint, that is, the Greek translation of the Old Testament. This version was preserved in far earlier manuscripts than the Hebrew manuscripts. Before 1947, the prevalent thinking concerning the Septuagint was that it largely confirmed the Hebrew text of the Masoretic text. And in places where it did not, many of the differences could be explained by recourse to the translation philosophies of the various Septuagint translators. That is, a particular translator may have approached his task with NIV, or the message, or, or even the Amplified Bible principles of translation. And I trust that Peter Williams will provide more on the Septuagint for us here this morning. So here's a look at the Codex Sinaiticus from the 4th century uh, AD. So again, as you can see, far earlier than those uh, 10th century manuscripts that I showed uh, previously. Therefore, before 1947, we had the Masoretic text manuscripts from the medieval period and the earlier manuscript tradition of the Septuagint. Many have heard versions of the story of the Bedouins who found what are now referred to as the Dead Sea Scrolls in Cave 1 at an obscure place called Qumran on the northwest corner of the Dead Sea. So, here, we've got uh, a map of, of the sites around the Dead Sea, Jericho and Jerusalem here for reference. Qumran, on the northwest side of the Dead Sea, uh, yielded numerous manuscripts, 225 or so Bible manuscripts, and manuscripts were also found at other less known sites, sites that don't get talked about in Newsweek and uh, places like that. The discovery of these texts has changed the way scholars view the textual transmission of the Old Testament. At first, the discoveries from Cave 1, such as where the great Isaiah scroll rested for centuries, were thought only to confirm the textual authenticity of the later Masoretic text. In other words, the picture of textual uniformity was confirmed in the early years of Dead Sea Scrolls research. So as, as an example, we've got uh, a, a citation here from one of the earlier scholars, Miller Burroughs, from 1955. He says, it's a matter for wonder that through something like a thousand years, the text underwent so little alteration. As I said in my first article on the scroll, herein lies its chief importance, supporting the fidelity of the Masoretic tradition. Indeed, this early fact made its way into apologetics manuals and Bible handbooks and surveys and was not revised when more evidence came to light. However, more evidence from Qumran was discovered and evaluated, which did not support the Masoretic text in as directly a manner. In particular, Caves 4 and 11 yielded texts which showed more textual diversity. Therefore, some scholars have shifted their thinking about the textual history of the Old Testament. Instead of viewing the evidence as supporting a textual uniformity, they now talk increasingly more about textual pluriformity 
or about its close cousin, textual fluidity. Uh, So, for example, I think Michael Law puts this the best in his relatively new work, When God Spoke Greek. He says, to be candid, before the Bible, there was no Bible. Before the beginning of the second century CE, there were Jewish scriptures whose forms were still in flux, and many scriptures were excluded in the finalization of the Hebrew Bible. Prior to the second century, there was no way of knowing which scriptural books would be included within the collection and which would be left out, nor was there any way of knowing how the final version of the individual books would appear. Law then details the implications of this view very clearly. There are several important implications, some of which we shall see unfold in the following chapters. Jesus and Paul did not have a Bible. Before the production of a Bible, Jews and Christians used numerous scriptural texts that never made it into the canon. And the forms that later became biblical books were in an extraordinary state of fluctuation between the 3rd century BCE and the 2nd CE. Well, both perspectives, textual uniformity and textual pluriformity, are in need of revision. That is, there is evidence of textual diversity, yes, let's not deny that, and there is also evidence of textual stability. And these are not mutually exclusive positions when considered in light of all of the evidence. The textual history of the Old Testament has aspects of floriformity, but few are pausing long enough to consider the nature of this floriformity and how we might best explain it. On the other hand, the text also has a certain stability. The earlier discoveries of manuscripts which agreed with the Masoretic text were not wrong. But they have been overshadowed by more recent discoveries. So what are the historical factors that account for this complex textual transmission? The answer that appears, one answer that appears to be gaining traction and the one I want to explore with you all for the rest of my time is the idea that the, that the, uh, that, um, sorry, these, uh, yes, uh, is that in the ancient world, Israel included had a concept of texts laid up in the temple library or archive. And many of these same texts were fixed and in canonical form by the 2nd century B.C. So first, I want to demonstrate this idea by first showing the ancient testimony for a temple text. Second, I want to rehearse the actual textual evidence for this text, which almost certainly was copied from master scrolls in the temple. Third, we'll look at two brief test cases, one from the Psalter and the other from Exodus 15, to show how the text was conservatively copied through the centuries, which are suggestive for the rest of the text of the Old Testament. Fourth, we'll make some conclusions concerning the textual history of the Old Testament and also for pastoral ministry. So first, the ancient notion of temple texts. The evidence for a temple text in Israel comes from both direct and indirect evidence. We possess evidence from the Old Testament and other second temple sources. 
Also, we possess evidence of an indirect nature. Egypt, Mesopotamia, and the Hittites also leave behind a record of laying up texts in temple libraries or archives. So let's consider first the evidence from the Old Testament itself. So I can find, well, there's our our overview. But how about this? Exodus 25, 16, the Lord instructs uh, Moses, or Moses instructs the people, you shall put into the ark the testimony that I shall give you. Or in Exodus 40, verse 20, he took the testimony and put it into the ark and put the poles on the ark and set the mercy seat above on the ark. Deuteronomy 10, and I will write on the tablets the words that were on the first tablets that you broke, and you shall put them in the ark. And of course, this is an assumption maybe, but the ark is in the tabernacle, right? It's it's in the temple, it's in the shrine. More, and when he sits on the throne, this is the king of Israel, when he sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself in a book, literally a scroll, a copy of this law approved by or literally in front of the Levitical priests. Deuteronomy 31, verse 9, Then Moses wrote this law and gave it to the priests, the sons of Levi, who carried the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord, and to all the elders of Israel. Deuteronomy 31, when Moses had finished writing the words of this law in a book to the very end, Moses commanded the Levites who carried the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord, take this book of the law and put it by the side of the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord your God, that it may be there for a witness against you. And in Joshua, we see, so Joshua made a covenant with the people that day and put in place statutes and rules for them at Shechem. And Joshua wrote these words in the book of the law of God. And he took a large stone and set it up there under the terebinth that was, again, by the sanctuary of the Lord. Two more. There was nothing in the ark except the two tablets of stone that Moses put there at Horeb, where the Lord made a covenant with the people of Israel when they came out of the land of Egypt. And this last text... Whatever text they find here in the temple sparks a massive reformation during the reign of Josiah. They return to the Lord and the keeping of his Torah. And Hilkiah, the high priest, said to Shaphan, the secretary, I have found the book of the law in the house of the Lord. And Hilkiah gave the book to Shaphan, and he read it. In these nine texts from the Old Testament, it seems that there's a clear pattern of placing the law in the shrine or the temple. The last one may be the most instructive for the temple text that was discovered by Hilkiah the high priest caused the national reform. Now, is this idiosyncratic on Israel's part? Or or are other nations doing this around the same time? Well, we've got some texts from, from the Hittites. We have clear evidence from these treaties. In these treaties, in their structures, many of them have what are called deposition clauses. That is, clauses that instruct the people where to place the treaty itself. You couldn't just place it anywhere. You had to place it 
in the shrine or the temple, according to these phrases. In the three examples which follow, the tablet of the treaty is placed before or in front of the sun goddess of Arena. Arena was the major Hittite cult center of the sun goddess. Therefore, the treaty instructs the people to place it before the image of the goddess, which would most naturally be in the shrine itself. We'll just read the first one, and then we've got to move. A duplicate of this tablet is deposited before the sun goddess of Arena, since the sun goddess of Arena governs kingship and queenship. And in the land of Mitanni, a, du- a duplicate is deposited before the storm god, lord of the Kurinu of Kahat. It shall be read repeatedly, forever and ever, before the king of the land of Mitanni and before the Hurrians. And the two other examples uh, from slightly later dates uh, confirm the same thing. National and international treaties were binding on the people and the kings in particular. They were authoritative documents, and they were laid up in the temple library or, or archive accordingly. Another area, in fact, a lot of study has been done here in the areas of uh, Mesopotamia and Egypt. This is just a summary from a book by Carl Vandertoon on scribal culture in the making of the Hebrew Bible. Here's what he says. In different ancient Near Eastern societies, scribes were recruited from the social upper class. They went through years of training before they exercised their profession. Those who followed an advanced training became the scholars of antiquity. They were responsible for the creation, preservation, and interpretation of the classic texts of their time. Their professional center, materially as well as spiritually, was the workshop of the temple. This connects the scribes responsible for the Bible with the temple and indicates a specialization within the priesthood focusing on writing and scholarship. The flourishing of scribal culture that produced this Hebrew Bible occurred in Judah in the Second Temple period. There was an intimate link between the scribal profession as it took shape in the Persian era and the application and interpretation of the written law. The Jewish scribes developed into the scholars of the nation and the guardians of its literary heritage. Now, although there were other places of writing, literacy, and scholarship in the ancient world, Proverbs 25, verse 1, for example, mentions the men of Hezekiah, right? So that would clearly show that there was something going on in the royal courts as well. It's also clear that there was a place in the temple for such scholarly work from the earliest period of Israel's history, and also near the end with the Levitical scribe Ezra. The notion of the temple as the place where scholarship and text preservation and promotion occurred becomes more pronounced as we move into the second temple period, specifically the period from the second century BC to the first century AD. So, Sources that we've never heard of, and to be frank, I don't know if I've studied the Damascus document very much before I prepared for this talk, but from the Dead Sea Scrolls and the Cairo Geniza comes a text referred to as the Damascus document. This, is, this was found in Qumran. It describes the sectarian work uh, or the beliefs and practices of the Qumran community. 
It was known before the discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls from what, was, what is known as a Geniza or a storage place off of the Ben Ezra synagogue in old Cairo, Egypt. And in column 7, lines 14 to 18, we have the following interpretation. When the two houses of Israel were divided, Ephraim departed from Judah, and all the apostates were given up to the sword. But those who held fast escaped to the land of the north. As God said, I will exile the tabernacle of your king and the bases of your statutes from my tent to Damascus. Then he provides an interesting interpretation of this verse in Amos. He says, The books of the law are the tabernacle of the king. As God said, I will raise the tabernacle of David, which is fallen. The king is the congregation, and the bases of the statues are the books of the prophets, whose sayings Israel despised. So the Damascus document interprets the text of Amos 5, 26 to 27, as God will remove or exile the books of the law, right, the tabernacle, and the prophets, the bases of, of the statues, from my tent, that is, from the temple in Jerusalem, and these will all be exiled to Damascus. This text witnesses that the law and the prophets were in the temple at the time of the exile, or at least by the time the interpretation was made in the 3rd or 2nd century B.C. It may not necessarily be the Masoretic text. That's not the point here. The main point here is that there is a testimony to a temple text found even in the literature at Qumran. A second Uh, Another second temple source, dated to somewhere between 150 and 100 B.C., is called the Letter of Aristeus. This tractate, or a piece of propaganda, really, was composed to validate the Greek translation of the Hebrew Pentateuch, known as the Septuagint. The letter contains a literary fiction of the origins of this Greek translation. For our purposes, this letter provides... One, a window into the state of the Hebrew text of the law in Alexandria, Egypt. And two, it provides the location of the master scroll of the law. In the letter of Aristeus, section 30, the librarian Demetrius is reporting to the king on the state of the volumes in the library. He notes that the law of the Jews, with a few other books, is missing from the library in Alexandria. And he provides the following reason. He says, scrolls of the law of the Jews, together with a few others, are missing from the library. For these works are written in Hebrew characters and language. But they have been transcribed somewhat carelessly and not as they should be, according to the report of the experts, because they have not received royal patronage. The reason the law has not been acquired by the library in Alexandria is because the Hebrew text in Alexandria has fallen into disrepair. Isn't that interesting that they knew that? It's interesting. Some people think these guys had no clue what their texts were like. And yet this text says very clearly that they recognized that the Hebrew texts they had were copied carelessly. And what do they do now to fix that problem? Well, 
Demetrius then proposes that the king send a letter to the high priest Eleazar in Jerusalem, asking him to dispatch men who are skilled in the law and possessing an ability to translate it. In turn, Eleazar, the high priest, sends 72 skilled men with a copy of the book of the law from Jerusalem to Alexandria in order for them to translate it and deposit it in the library there. Now, there are a number of details to the story that could be interpreted as propaganda, but there is one detail, it seems to me, that must be true for the argument to have any persuasive power, and that is there must be a reliable and authoritative copy of the book of the law laid up in the temple, guarded and preserved by the high priest Eleazar. Even if there was no journey from Alexandria to Jerusalem, there must still be a temple text of the law in Jerusalem which the people knew about and from which the authoritative translation of the law must come. Another text, 2 Maccabees 2, 13-15. The same things are reported in the records and in the memoirs of Nehemiah, and also that he founded a library and collected the books about the kings and prophets and the writings of David and the letters of kings about votive offerings. In the same way, Judas also collected all the books that had been lost on account of the war that had come upon us, and they are in our possession. So if you have need of them, send people to get them for you. This text relays a tradition of when Nehemiah, having come back from Persia, founded a library and collected the books about the kings and the prophets and the writings of David and the letters of kings about votive offerings. From this text, Judas appears to be following the pattern of Israel's leaders by collecting and keeping books in a library or temple archive. The last figure that we'll look at is Josephus, the Jewish historian from the latter part of the first century A.D. He mentions texts laid up in the temple on seven different occasions. We have time to just look at two briefly. The first comes from his work, The Jewish War. He says... This is after the Romans come in to uh, sack Jerusalem and the temple. He says, The spoils in general were born in promiscuous heaps, but conspicuous above all stood those captured in the temple at Jerusalem. And he goes on to list a number of things, but then he ends with this. After these, and last of all the spoils, was carried a copy of the law of the Jews. Here, Josephus describes the spoil taken by the Romans from the temple in Jerusalem. Among the spoils in the temple is a copy of the law of the Jews. A copy of the Jewish law was carried as last of the spoils from the temple and taken to Rome. Another example from Josephus. From his uh, work called Against Apian. It's a bit of an apologetic work, but I think he speaks... Uh, truthfully here. He says, we have given practical proof of our reverence for our own scriptures. And in just the previous section, he's very clear 
about 22 books of the Old Testament, you see. Those are his scriptures. For although such long ages have now passed, no one has ventured either to add or to remove or to alter a syllable. And it is an instinct with every Jew from the day of his birth to regard them as the decrees of God, to abide by them, and if need be, cheerfully die for them. This section claims that the text of of the Scriptures was copied very carefully. Josephus clearly defines the Scriptures in the preceding section as the 22 books of the Old Testament canon. I don't know, this might be a bit small, but people have uh, put this 22-book canon together. You might wonder how this happens. Well, from ancient times, as early as uh, the book of Ben-Sirah, we, uh, 180 B.C., there is record of the 12 prophets counting as one book. One book. And from many ancient records, Judges and Ruth were always combined. It, was, it is possible, though, Ruth could have been grouped with Psalms, but I'm pretty convinced Judges and Ruth were together pretty early. And Ezra and Nehemiah were always combined. And Lamentations usually follows uh, Jeremiah. So the Jews, according to Josephus, had a system of numbering their books, 22, after the pattern of 22 letters in the Hebrew alphabet. There was another system, though, which numbered them as 24. And in that system, uh, Ruth gets its own spot and Lamentations gets its own spot. But Josephus makes a staggering claim here that these books have not been changed. And I don't think he's speaking about every Jewish sect out in the desert either. In other words, I don't know if he has Qumran in mind. I think what he's referring to, at least in context of Against Apian, is back in uh, Against Apian uh, 129, Josephus makes clear that uh, these records, these same books, have been cared for by the high priests and the prophets in accordance with the charge of the forefathers. Therefore, Josephus is best viewed as making claims for the strict preservation of the text laid up in the temple and the one guarded by high priests. So, some conclusions. Many texts from the Old Testament, ancient Near East, and Second Temple sources, so 500 to 70 A.D., right? Second Temple sources attest that scriptures were laid up in the temple. Many of these same texts attest that priests were in charge of the scriptures. And three, all sources have a Torah text in the temple, The Damascus document included the prophetic books. And finally, Josephus claimed that the 22-book canon of the Old Testament was laid up in the temple and has been cared for by the high priests. The ancient context combined with these texts makes clear that there was a text of Israel's scripture laid up in the temple from at least as far back as the middle to late Second Temple period or 250 B.C., to 100 AD. But can we say more about this text? Is there any remnant of it in the remaining textual evidence? In other words, is there a surviving textual tradition 
which appears to have come from the temple. How would one identify such a text? What if there was one dominant type of text across all geographic sites for the period of 300 B.C. to 135 A.D.? Wouldn't that then raise the probability that there was some central site where text preservation and promotion happened for the period in question? Indeed, Emmanuel Tove's assumption is that only a text which housed master scrolls of the books of the Old Testament could account for one type of text having such a geographical and temporal distribution. So what's the evidence for this text? The earliest evidence for this text. Again, the Dead Sea Scrolls provide direct evidence of the textual form of the Bible from the 3rd century B.C., to the first half of the first century A.D. Out of some 900 scrolls that were discovered at Qumran, about 225 of these are biblical. There were 43 biblical scrolls found at the other sites around the Dead Sea. Now, in the briefest of terms, what can we say about those 225 texts? Again, I'm dependent on Emmanuel Tove here. But in the briefest of terms, the scrolls from Qumran were found, one, to agree with the text of the Masoretic text, and we're going to focus on those. Two, to agree with the text of the Septuagint. And three, to agree with the text of the Samaritan Pentateuch. And four, do not align with any of these texts. The scrolls found from the other sites around the Dead Sea all align identically with what we would call, or with what would be called, the Masoretic text tradition. It is this history of this tradition which concerns us now. So, in this next part, I want to review the earliest evidence for the precursor to the Masoretic text tradition. This evidence consists of what we call inner circle texts, Inner circle texts, second circle texts from Qumran, and the Kaige tradition. I'll explain Kaige in a moment. This evident, or the two interesting facts about this text type are that it enjoys the widest geographical distribution, and it is the Hebrew tradition which endured the longest. As we shall see, this text type was found at all sites around the Dead Sea and was present before and after the temple in Jerusalem was destroyed in AD 70. It's my assumption, as well as Tov's, that only master scrolls in the central and authoritative temple could account for this kind of distribution. So, inner circle texts. One observation about this list These are inner circle texts. What I mean by that, well, I'll explain what I mean by that in a moment. But 14 books of the 24-book canon are represented here. According to Tove, the differences between these texts and the later Masoretic text manuscripts pertain to spelling. Spelling. A few minute variants, slightly different paragraphing, and the layout of individual psalms. All of these differences are reflected in the medieval manuscript tradition itself. 
it's important to remember that these manuscripts are not the master scrolls that were laid up in the temple. They were probably copies of these scrolls, since they meet specifications for such text. The Masada situation is particularly illuminating. So this is, uh, this is a picture of Masada. I don't know if we can see everything here. Uh, but right off on this corner right here, they found a synagogue at Masada. And within that synagogue, they found manuscripts, interestingly. And uh, specifically, uh, under the, uh, under the uh, floor of the synagogue, they found a Masada scroll from Deuter- of Deuteronomy and of Ezekiel. These scrolls were laying in two pits, carefully dug under the floor of the synagogue. This means, then, we're looking at actual texts used at the synagogue, you see, from the late 1st century B.C. and the early 1st century A.D. Well, what else do we learn from these texts found at Masada? The physical characteristics of these scrolls matches those of luxury scrolls, including three key characteristics. Precision in the copying. They were very precisely copied. Their text type is identical with the later Masoretic text, along with the other Masada scrolls found outside of the synagogue. All luxury scrolls have a top and bottom margin of at least three centimeters, and they usually have a large number of lines. The scrolls found at Masada, the full ones where we can actually see the margins, uh, like the one behind us, that uh, indicates that these are special scrolls. Luxury scrolls exhibit minimal scribal interventions, shown by fewer mistakes, therefore needing fewer corrections, and by few scribal changes. In other words, these exhibit ultra-conservative copying. In fact, the Masada Deuteronomy scroll has one scribal intervention per 17 lines, And the one here of the Psalms has one per 85 lines. These texts most probably were copied from the master scrolls in the temple. They were like the corrected scrolls of the later rabbinic sources. And we'll come back to the Masada Psalm scroll in a moment in order to demonstrate the conservative nature of this text. The second place is Qumran. And uh, here... We have a similar list, but now the books of Samuel, Kings, Job, Proverbs, and Ruth are added, or roughly 17 books of the 24-book canon are represented here in this list. The characteristics of these texts, according to Tov, are as follows. Proto-Masoretic texts contain the consonantal framework of the Masoretic text 1,000 or more years before the time of the Masora Codices. The exclusive closeness of the Qumran text to the medieval texts is remarkable. While textual identity is spotted only for those inner circle texts, these texts still resemble a high conservatism in copying. We'll summarize these results a bit later, but let's turn to a third kind of evidence which supports our thesis that there was a central text probably laid up in the temple And that same text influenced the overall textual transmission of the Old Testament. 
Sometime in the first century B.C. or before, the Jews in Palestine began both to revise their Greek texts and to translate their Hebrew text more literally in accordance with the text that eventually became called the Masoretic text. That all, that all of these revisions of the Septuagint reflect the Masoretic text shows the great influence that that text had on many milieus in Palestine in the first century B.C. and the first two centuries A.D. What accounts for the use of this text as the standard for the revision of older Greek translations and its use as the base text of later Greek translations? In case you're a little confused about Greek revisions, I was. It took me years to understand this uh, problem. But Matthew 2.15, when Matthew cites um, Hosea 11.1, Out of Egypt I called my son. Go and look. uh, Find an English translation of the Septuagint at Hosea 11 verse 1, and you'll see right off that Matthew's not citing the Septuagint. Uh, Not in any form. What Matthew is citing is a Jewish revision of the Septuagint which matches more closely the Hebrew text that we would call now the Masoretic text, you see. This process of revision was happening in the uh, first century B.C. or before and uh, carried on all the way up into the second century A.D., especially as Jews continued to distance themselves from the Septuagint itself. Now, if what has been said so far is true, then during this period there was a text laid up in the temple and was the only text used in temple circles. That same text also exerted significant influence on Qumran and the other Dead Sea sites. Therefore, it was only natural for the Jews in Palestine to use that text as the standard of revision and as the base text for the later Greek translations. These Greek revisions and translations provide us with one more reason to think that the temple preserved and promulgated a text that ultimately became known as the Masoretic text. By way of review, by way of review, Inner circle texts, yes, there we go. Inner circle texts refer to those texts that were copied so conservatively that there was very little scribal intervention indicated by minimal corrections. Parts of 14 biblical books have been preserved in these kinds of texts. They were probably copied from master scrolls housed in the temple itself. Second circle texts from Qumran refer to manuscripts which do not show the clear, or which do not show the clear signs of exact copying as the inner circle texts do, but they exhibit the conservative wording of a text like the Masoretic text. Parts of 17 biblical books were found in these scrolls. Finally, the Greek kaige tradition represents new Greek translations like Lamentations and Ruth. Um, Ecclesiastes, Song of Songs, these books that were translated late fall under this Kaige tradition. And also, they began to revise earlier Septuagint translations according to something like the Masoretic text. 
when these three strands of evidence are combined, the picture that emerges is that all 24 books of the Hebrew Old Testament are accounted for in the conservatively copied form, which again probably derived from the temple. It is astounding that these books in this text form are represented at Qumran in great number at Qumran, other sites around the Dead Sea, only this text type is found at the other sites around the Dead Sea, and in the Greek revisions. And it is only this Hebrew text which comes through to the rabbinic period of the second century AD and is copied carefully all the way up to the period of the Masoretes, or 500 to 1000 AD. This picture is what caused my old professor to talk about the Masoretic text as a rugged tradition. That is, this tradition evidences an astounding endurance and a stubborn conservatism when compared to the popular texts from the same time. It's not always correct, as we'll see, but the tradition itself has an ancient history. The leading assumption is that only the authoritative master scrolls laid up in the temple, attested by the sources looked at earlier, could account for the fairly wide geographical and temporal distribution of this one text type. A simple regional text could not attain such a status and a distribution. And a 2nd century A.D. creation cannot account for the relative antiquity of this textual family either. To sum up, we have established the validity of a temple text in Israel at this time, according to the ancient testimony. And two, all 24 books of the Hebrew Old Testament were probably a part of this temple collection, since all 24 books have been partially preserved in the text type, which probably goes back to the central hub itself. This same text reached the rabbinic era and essentially was picked up and used by the Masoretes, as we will see in a moment. I'm going to skip this outline here. With the time remaining, I want to be able to show you some actual examples. What do we mean by textual preservation? I want to just take two examples, one from Exodus 15, the Song of the Sea, and another from Psalm 82. Exodus 15, we've got two manuscripts, the one called Ashkar Gilson from the 7th century A.D., and the Leningrad Codex, which is a codex clearly belonging to the Masoretes, dated to 1008. So the first example demonstrates that this passage was conservatively copied over a three to four hundred year period, and in fact demonstrates that the Masoretes around 900 and later probably consulted a text like the Ashkar Gilson text as they went about their work. So here's the image. I don't know how this is. Yeah, it's very small. But uh, you can tell. So these are the five, these are five lines. Talk about those in a moment. Everyone maybe notices that this column is quite narrow. This column is quite a bit wider, and maybe you can, I don't know if you're up close, maybe in the front row, you can see the spacing here. This is the, po- the poem of the Song of the Sea uh, by Moses. 
This piece of a Torah scroll contains the text, again, from Exodus 13, 19 to 16, verse 1. Scholars suggest that it came from the Cairo Geniza, the same one from the old synagogue of Ezra, or the synagogue of Ezra in, uh, in old Cairo. This scroll has all of the features of a model Torah scroll and meets all of the requirements for copying one found uh, in the Talmud and the, and the tractate, the Sopharim. These are uh, places that give us exact specifications for manuscript copying. The columns in this manuscript are about 42 lines high. The consonantal text was copied with extreme care and shows no signs of correction. The scribe observed the the ruled margin strictly and avoided protrusions beyond one letter at a time. Blank spaces that were due to the spacing out of the lines were filled with one or more dots to indicate that they were meaningless. All of these factors indicate that a scroll was copied most exactly according to the standards. And again, looking at the layout of the song here. The layout, further evidence of the strict copying, comes from the layout of the song. One notices right away that there are spaces between the words. This is the pattern known as a half brick over a whole brick and a whole brick over a half brick, which basically means a writing block over non-writing block. So you have writing, then a space below, writing, and then a space below. The tractate, Sophorim, specifies such a layout. Now, what do we say about this one? Interesting. If you're just... You've got this in your mind. There are five lines up here with a space and then this extremely intricate layout. From about three to four hundred years later, we're now looking at a codex, not a piece of a scroll, and we're looking at five lines here with a space with, you'll have to take my word for it, the same exact layout beneath. The scribe of of the Leningrad Codex went through great pains to make sure that each word was where it needed to be by inserting meaningless spaces with dots before the last word of several lines in order to prevent blank spaces between the last word and the left margin. Some Some of you might be able to see there are four dots here or maybe a few dots here or two here all ensuring that this word and 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 this word word, all the way down end the line. So you could put no other word next to it, you see. The five special lines above the song are quite interesting. Yes, this is what uh, a normal column in the Leningrad Codex looks like. So this is, a, this is a, a special page here as well. But um, here's a bit of a focus. Those were the five lines at the top in the first couple lines of the Song of the Sea in Ashkar Gilson and the first five lines of the Leningrad Codex with the first two lines of the Song of the Sea. The text clearly breaks the normal columnar layout and switches to a wider column with five full lines of text, followed by a space and then the copying of the Song of the Sea. 
the five lines begin with the following five words, respectively. So if you're in your text in uh, uh, Exodus 14, verse 28, that line that, or that half verse that begins with who followed, or verse 29 on dry ground, or dead on the seashore, you see, or uh, in, uh, in among the Egyptians, or in Egypt, you see. Uh, these five lines, interestingly, the text shows no compression or unusual spacing of the previous columns in order to have the words who followed begin the first special line. What I mean by that is if you were to go back, there's a little bit of lag here, if you were to go back, there's no unusual spacing in this column here in order to guarantee that this column will begin with the words who followed, okay? But if you look at the Leningrad Codex, if I can get back to it, there's actually some interesting spacing issues here and here and here and here. This is a design space. This is an interesting... There's filler here and here and here. Also that this codex will begin with the, lo- the word who followed after them into the sea. We can see within the five lines themselves that the scribe of the Leningrad Codex ensured that his text would contain the five special lines beginning with the same exact words as his exemplar. The space between the five lines and the Song of the Sea is also maintained in the later copy. There's a few other uh, items we could talk about, but I'm going to skip right to the summary here. The amount of correspondence between this Ashkar Gilson and Leningrad Codex is remarkable. If the manuscripts are separated by 400 years, that's about the time gap between the pilgrims and us. If it's more like 300 years, that's still about the time gap between the French and Indian War and us. Or for our Tyndale friends, it's about as long a gap as the forming of the United Kingdom of Great Britain in 1707 and us. The point is that to have only a handful of spelling differences between texts over this great span of time without the printing press is truly remarkable. And the wording of this text, though not its layout, can be established by some of the much earlier Exodus scrolls from the Dead Sea Scrolls. This text sheds light on how the Masoretes worked. They were clearly trying to preserve and copy exactly the finest text at their disposal. They did not copy just any text. They transcribed those as exactly, or they they were careful to use the model codices that met the strictest of copying standards and to transcribe those as exactly as possible. Another example. Psalm 82 in the Masada Psalm Scroll. This scroll from Masada, this one, was originally dated to the first half of the first century A.D., but later analysis of the script confirmed that it belongs to the last part of the first century B.C. There are no textual variants between Masada Psalms A and the Aleppo Codex in Psalm 82 though there are maybe five to six variants contained in the entire manuscript. So Psalm 82 is up here, 
And then we've got about the first 17 and a half verses of 83 fully. There's some broken text over here from Psalm 81 uh, and some text from 83 and 84 uh, here. I'm focusing mainly on that psalm that we have the entire text of here at the top. In short, this text is a pristine example of the conservatively copied text from just before the time of Jesus. The Aleppo Codex preserves most of the text of the Old Testament and is usually dated to around 925 A.D. It preserves the vowel points and accents, and therefore it is a very good example of the Masoretic tradition. The Aleppo Codex is separated from the Masada Psalm Scroll by approximately 950 years. That time gap is about as long as the one between the Great Schism of the Church, which took place in 1054 A.D., and us. Some of you are like, what is he even talking about? (laughs) It's a long time, almost a thousand years. Now, let's look at the layout. We need to look at the layout of Psalm 82 in each manuscript. Masada Psalms A has a layout where the column is divided into half lines. So here's a half line, here's a half line, started by another half line, half line. You can see the gap or spaces that occur between all of these. These, it is assumed, indicate sense divisions between lines. Okay? These are poems, right? When do I break? When do I pick back up again, right? Well, I think, you know, these, these layouts indicate uh, such a system of when they might pause and then pick back up again. The Aleppo Codex has a slightly different layout than the Masada Psalm Scroll, which we might expect given the 950-year gap. That's not the point of this comparison. The Aleppo Codex clearly marks its sense units, or poetic lines, using a system of spaces and disjunctive accents. The interesting part of this comparison is that wherever the Masada Psalm scroll has a half-line or end-of-line break, the Aleppo Codex has a space plus a disjunctive accent, marking the same exact sense unit divisions as the manuscript from 25 B.C., which suggests that the reading of the psalm was preserved for almost a millennium. What can we conclude from this? First, we see that the wording of the psalm was copied exactly. This conclusion would be enough to show the careful copying of the text through the centuries. Second, Even the way the Masoretes divided the psalm into sense units matched the sense unit divisions of the scroll from Masada. Masada housed texts which were probably copied directly from the text of the temple library. Could it be, then, that at least in this case, which is suggestive of many more, the Masoretes worked from copies of copies of copies, which went back to the temple itself? I think so but you will have to consider this evidence for yourself. Some conclusions. Many sources attest the presence of a temple library in Jerusalem, which housed the biblical books and probably other books as well. 
This text must have been conservatively copied, the Masoretic text, copied from an earlier period to have enjoyed such prominence by the actual Second Temple period. Second, this statement does not deny actual textual diversity found at Qumran and sometimes in the Greek Septuagint in the same period under investigation. The best way to understand the relationship of diversity and stability is to see that diversity assumes an already stable text housed in the temple. The text was copied by repetition or by resignification. The first method guaranteed that the conservatively copied text would be embodied by the steady writing and hearing of the same wording. The second method of copying updated and adapted the text to fit the circumstances of the day. Both methods of text production were faithful examples of preserving the Word of God. Third, the temple library is probably responsible for the relative good state of textual preservation throughout its transmission. We have almost no evidence of the Bible before 300 B.C. But the period for which we have evidence, 300 to 135, shows a relatively well-preserved textual tradition And this is probably because the text was well-preserved in the earlier periods under the care of the priests in the temple. Now, I know we're ready for a break. But let me just close with three implications for, for pastors. You have a tough job. Not only are you called to preach, to counsel, to generally guide the life of the church according to the Word of God. But also you are called to contend for the faith once for all handed down to the saints. And among other things, you must be able to refute or reprove those who oppose sound doctrine. What exactly is your responsibility in light of more and more emphasis being placed on the history of the Bible? Here's my two cents. Christians should not fear history, evidence, and facts. This point goes for the evidence of the Bible itself. The real matter for pastoral concern is bad interpretations of the evidence. As pastors, I think it is important to convey this very idea to your congregations. Let me illustrate briefly from an article that I read in Newsweek before Christmas. The Bible so misunderstood it's a sin. In this article, Kurt Eichenwald compared the copying of the text of Scripture with playing telephone with the Word of God. Eichenwald evoked the image of the game that we have all played where a message is started at the beginning of a circle of people, and by the time it gets to the end of the circle, it usually is a very different message than the initial one. Eichenwald believes that the process of copying and translating biblical text has made it certain that no one has ever read the Bible. Here's how he put it so colorfully in the article. No television preacher has ever read the Bible. Neither has any evangelical politician. Neither has the Pope. Neither have I. And neither have you. At best, we've all read a bad translation. A translation of translations of translations of hand-copied copies of copies of copies of copies and on and on hundreds of times. He goes on to give us all kinds of reasons for why we have all misunderstood the Bible and its history. The point here is not to dismiss Eichenwald's arguments or his appeal to historical evidence. 
Rather, we will give a better response to these kinds of arguments for our churches if we simply provide a better explanation from the body of evidence. And better explanations are available, such as the one that I just gave and that uh, uh, Dr. Williams and Dr. Del Hussein and Dr. Grudem are going to give uh, later today. There are better explanations of the evidence. Don't just dismiss. Help your people. Work with your people through their questions. No question about the history of the Bible should be dismissed. I'm just going to leave it at that. Lastly, and very practically, be proactive in training the members of your churches in these areas. Put on seminars relevant to the issues. Use Sunday schools strategically. Preach the Bible in a way that communicates that it did not simply fall out of heaven. Make sure your sermons from the text reflect that the Bible is divine and human. For example, it's, it's okay to say Paul wrote. Try to envision the crises that your young people may encounter in Religion 101 at the university, given what you may or may not have told them already. Perhaps you may modify your current approach. These matters are difficult and challenging. May God grant us grace in our failures, and may he grant us wisdom as we learn and seek to instruct others in the faith once for all handed down to the saints. Thank you.